Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. Today, I am joined by Elizabeth Solomon. Elizabeth Solomon is a certified emotional intelligence coach, communications expert, trained systemic constellations facilitator, and workplace strategist invested in equity and positive social change. Bridging business-oriented strategy and intuition-guided development, she has spent close to two decades at the intersection of organizational culture, storytelling, and leadership development, a place where transformation happens. Influenced by neuroscience, psychology, sociology, mindfulness, and a dash of the mystic, she helps individuals and organizations clarify their purpose, communicate authentically, and redefine business as usual. The founder of New Realm Coaching and Consulting, her approach is both data-driven and intuitive, grounded in the facts while embracing our humanity. In addition to one-on-one coaching, Elizabeth often consults with entrepreneurs and organizations on the overlap between brand and culture. A systems thinker and expert in human behavior, her work spans human-centered design, workshop facilitation, communication strategy, and team building. She is the co-host of Daniel Goleman's podcast, First Person Plural, Emotional Intelligence and Beyond, a former researcher and evaluator for the Great Place to Work Institute, and an inaugural member of the Teal Team, a group of like-minded professionals exploring new ways of being, working, and organizing. Additionally, I'll be donating to and raising awareness for the charity or organization of my guest's choice. This episode, I'll be raising awareness for Alianza DV. Any and all donations make a difference. Please join me in donating. The link is in the show notes. And if you couldn't tell by Elizabeth's bio, she knows a thing or two about how to human. And we explore a lot of different intersections in this conversation. I think the bulk of the conversation is spent on understanding the systems that we operate and how our way of being and doing is influenced by the systems. A lot of the very common systems that we are all part of in America are our family system, our educational system, capitalism, the influence of the government, uh, and generationally too, where did we come from? Did our great grandparents and beyond, did they experience poverty? Were they oppressed in some way? All of these things kind of smash together and influence the way that we are in the present day. We also talk about what Daniel Goleman has popularized in emotional intelligence and why it's just as important as IQ, brain intelligence, that most of us tend to focus on. Overall, this was just such a fun and rich exploration. Liz has such a warm and inviting presence, and she's such a student of what it means to be alive. And I think that you're going to get that sense as soon as she starts talking. With all of that said, settle in, take a deep breath, and enjoy what Liz has for us today. 
Hi, Elizabeth. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Mm, thank you for inviting me here today. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, you are not the first guest who beforehand wanted to have some sort of idea about like, what are what are we getting into here? And I believe I sent you the way that I start every single interview. Mm-hmm. So I would love to know, what was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up? <laughs> Yeah, it's such an interesting. I thought that was such a beautiful question. And it actually makes me wonder if at some point after you record a lot of interviews, maybe you'll do like an audio montage of Mm. people's different dinner tables. I would love to be transported through people's different homes. I am an only child. My parents separated and divorced when I was two years old. So I went between two homes for my entire life. I am a product of the 80s. So I was sort of you know, my childhood was spent in the era of frozen dinners and the microwave and that all being (laughs) a reliable (laughs) food preparation tool. So at my mom's house, we used to eat dinner on TV trays in front of the TV and a lot of like frozen meals. We'd have a lot of breakfast for dinner. And I just remember, you know, and we would like chat and watch a show. I mean, who knows what we were watching? I think I'm sure it ranged from like DuckTales to Who's the Boss or whatever was, you know, on at that point. And I go back and look at those shows now and I'm like, oh my God. And then my dad and I, I was at his house on the weekends. We, he would take me out to dinner. So We would spend probably Friday night at a restaurant and then Saturday night eating at home around the table. He was partnered with one woman for about, gosh, 15 years from when I was 10 to 22. So she was an influential part of my upbringing. And she is a really curious person. So dinner with her always looked like a lot of questions. You know, she was, she really sort of held, held conversation around the dinner table. But, you know, it's interesting growing up in a small, family or as a, you know, as an only child, especially an only child with a single mom, I think it looks really different. Uh, And I I say that just for context, me and my partner now, my partner has three kids and I have one. So I live in a house of a lot of children and we don't always eat dinner with them because there's four of them and we're kind of running around doing stuff. But I listen to the quality of their conversations around the dinner table and I'm just kind of blown away at the difference in in dining with a big family. Mm. How would you describe what you were like as a child? I feel like I'm doing so much like inner child work these days. Um, (laughs) So many answers to that that question. How would I describe what I was like as a child? Sweet, bossy. It's funny. I remember having a lot of like asking some real, having a lot of like existential ponderings at a very young age. So I have some memories from a very young age of lying on my bed, staring up at the ceiling and asking questions like, what is like, what is existence? What is this? What, what is this thing? Or, you know, what is this world around me? Who am I really? Where do I really come from? And I reflect on that a lot because I think those questions have driven a lot of just how I move through the world. And they are kind of at the foundation of a lot of my curiosities. I remember, you know, having this interaction with my dad when I was little, where I was just like, and this, and this is how I feel. And how do you, you know, really getting into it. And um, he looked at me and he was like, whoa, you might be like a little too deep for me. And (laughs) there's a lot in there, you know, that was like a really hard thing to hear as a child and um, certainly sort of been pulling apart the pieces of that and how that one moment kind of uh, informed me. 
But yeah, I was asking a lot of big questions. I had a grandfather, my dad's dad, who passed away just before I was born. And I remember when I was about nine or 10, I would take this big black and white photograph of him and I would light candles and kind of like talk to his photograph and almost like hold visual, vigil or ritual for my deceased grandfather that I'd never met. These things seemed like totally normal when I was a kid. In hindsight, I'm like, well, it's like <laughs> really <laughs> interesting, interesting sort of, um, you know, interesting way to spend one's time. And yeah, I really, you know, I really appreciate appreciated creativity a lot, a lot of play, a lot of alone time, right? Being an only child. And it's been interesting to sort of think about how that's informed me too. And particularly, like I said, having a bigger family now and, you know, living in a house of six people as someone who grew up with a lot of quiet time has been a really interesting and meaningful transition for me. Mm. So I hope that answers some of your question. But it answers yeah. a lot of it. Yeah. I mean, some some kids play with doll houses and action figures and toys and and some uh, talk to pictures of their deceased grandparents, you know. <laughs> Do both. I definitely was doing both. There was a lot yeah. of Barbies. There was a lot yeah. of Barbies. Don't be fooled. Yeah. I guess I yeah. tease. Uh, your your answer stirred a lot in me. It it reminded me of memories of when I was a young child and this is a little bit different than what you were saying, but I remember a lot of times before I went to bed thinking, well, eventually I'm going to go to sleep forever. Like, what, mm. what is that? What does that mean? Mm. Like, I'm just going to die. My existence is completely gone. And what are like, why do we, what are we, what are we all doing? Right. Because I had that feeling. And for some reason it also stirred in me when I watched TV as a kid, there were, there were lots of things, but this is one specific thing I remember a lot of the advertisements or the commercials, they seemed so overtly manipulative to me. And it was, I, I would say to my parents, like, what, why don't they just tell the truth to us? <laughs> like, what are they It seems like they're making up some, some BS stuff there. And I think that my, my parents had a, a realization of that, but there was, uh, there was something ingrained in me of like, that's just, the system we live in, right? Like yeah. that's what capitalism is. People sell things and sometimes you have to lie to sell things. And there was a, there's an innocence that I think we all have as children to you, you spoke of your inner child work that in a lot of ways, we're just coming home to the truths that we always knew, but didn't have the language or structures or support to actualize. And so I yeah. mean, this, this actually, yeah, what, what does that stir up in you? I, it stirs up a lot in me. I just thank you for sharing that. And I, it, it stirs up a few things. It stirs up um, an awareness that having four children who gives me a lot of opportunities to sort of see how they are taking in the world. And I do think that, uh, you know, and of course it differs for every kid based on their kind of, you know, neurobiology and their personality types. And there's so many factors, right, that sort of go into how we perceive things. But I do think for the most part that when we're children, we're sort of perceiving with all of us, right? And so there's like a much deeper kind of inherent connection to like our body, for example, and picking up sort of somatic, you know, feeling things, experiencing things somatically, right? And and just as kids not even having the words for that, right? Or like language isn't even developed enough to be able to like fully articulate the depth or breadth of how we experience the world. But I was really resonating with what you were saying and 
similarly. And it started to really come out for me in high school. And it came out specifically in the context of learning history where I just, you know, and I was, I was like coming into, you know, some different forms of activism at that time. And was a teenager and was like learning about anarchy and, you know, growing up in this small liberal town. And, but I remember just having this feeling of like, wow, I like see and feel these truths, like I see and feel these truths, or I see and feel the absence of truth. And I'm trying to name that. And everyone keeps telling me to be quiet Mm. and learning or rather figuring out how to sort of straddle the line of being someone who kind of called bullshit for lack of a better term, and also being someone driven by like a deep need to be accepted and to belong and to be perfect. And so also playing the game of the system simultaneously. And I think like I, when I look back on my adolescence and my twenties, I sort of, I, I see myself as sort of balancing that dichotomy often of being like, this is totally not working and people are totally oppressed. And I like feel so much human suffering and I feel the presence of manipulation and I feel the presence of lies and I'm naming that and giving voice to that. And I'm listening to Ani DeFranco every day in my room and feeling like, you know, just totally enlivened. And then also feeling like I really want to succeed. I really want to do well. I want to get A's. I want to make money. I want to be part of this capitalist system. And, you know, I, I think again, that sort of negotiating between those two parts has been a big part of my journey. Mm. This seems like a, a really wonderful on-ramp into one of the topics that we had teed up around systems and systems constellations. And uh, I'll offer again, maybe a reflection on me. It was something that you touched on a little bit, that as an only child, you had lots of time alone and in solitude. And I don't, honestly, I don't remember how much time I had in solitude as a kid, but I, I can certainly, with hindsight, and reflection, realize I, I certainly craved it. I, mm. I wanted a lot more alone time. And there was a way in which I felt that the system pulled everyone into like, let's collaborate. Uh, being with people is better. Being extroverted is better. Mm-hmm. Sure of yourself, confident. That makes you a more attractive partner. And another one of the ways that I'm coming home to myself is around like, yeah, I'm gentle. I could be awkward. I'm sensitive. Mm -hmm. I feel a lot. Mm -hmm. Those are actually standing in what is true for me is way Mm -hmm. more powerful than me trying to mold myself into some Mm. mythical ideal. And I guess it's it's kind of a long-winded way to get around, like, what are what are some of the ways that, like, what, how would you describe systems and what are some of the ways that mm-hmm. we are all influenced by them? Yeah. So I think I, I would just describe systems as sort of uh, the network of interconnected parts that make up a whole, right? And so whether that's members of the family that make up the family unit, including all of the ancestors, whether that's the organs of the body that make up the body, whether that's constellations in the sky, the stars that make up the various constellations, right? And that these parts in being connected to each other as part of a whole are deeply interdependent, right? And that in a system, every time you sort of work with or rotate one part, everything else in the system feels that and and changes or adjusts accordingly. When you were talking about that, and when I think about, you know, the systems that sort of inform that value around being extroverted, being collaborative, one of the ways that I would think of that is, you know, 
So for example, if we were working together in a coaching capacity and I was thinking about the systems that informed you, I'd probably start to inquire like, you know, what of that is rooted in your family system? What if that is rooted in the larger societal system? Not that these things are completely separate. Again, we're all in one large system where everything's, you know, it's like a network, an ongoing network of nodal points. And the things that, and, and also the system of masculinity, right? I was thinking as you were talking, just what it is to be, you know, not that I know through experience, but what it is to be a cisgendered male who is acculturated to be extroverted, to be charming, to come forward with a sense of domination, right? And that men in our culture and this system are asked to be that. And so I, you know, I have a lot of male colleagues and men that I'm close to and male clients who um, are grappling with this a lot. Like, how do I be an introverted man? How do I be a quiet man? I feel like I'm actually a really quiet, soft man. And like, is that okay? And I, I have to really push back against the systemic influences of the culture in order to fully accept myself in that. And the other thing that sprang up for me, and I do a lot of work in so systemic constellations, which is rooted in family constellations and thinking about the role of ancestral traumas. So in the family, those ancestors being our familial ancestors, but in an organization, those also being the traumas of the organization, right? So you know, the the sort of founding of the organization, the players involved, the land involved, the circumstances under which the organization was founded. I think all of those things create these kind of traumas and fractures that when not looked at, perpetuate themselves as, as issues within the system. But I was thinking or wondering, a curiosity for me when you said that was where in your ancestral lineage might have extroversion been a survival method where might it have been completely and entirely necessary as part of surviving or thriving or staying alive in the face of great trauma. And so again, that's just a question that I would be asking through a sort of systemic lens. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, this, this brings up a lot in me as well. I, so I don't you weren't really directly asking me, but I, I think it could be helpful for the listener to just be walked through like I'm like, is- let me directly ask you. My my initial gut reaction is that in my household, my parents and my sister highly encouraged me to be me. There wasn't a whole lot of pressure of like your your two X. Like there wasn't a whole lot of criticism there. There were tiny nudges around like, let's get you to be a little bit better at small talk, like normal parenting things, I think. I don't look back on that and go like, you know, that was really tough for me to go through. The The memories that are more evocative for me were when I was in, say, high school and uh, I saw all the, you know, the quote unquote popular guys were the ones who were athletic who were talkative who like you know made jokes in class like it just life looked like it was easier for them and in my group of friends i was kind of poked fun at as the the one who like was too soft or not man enough and uh so those those certainly are way more evocative for me than which i think if you look at my school as the system like that was a reflection of society you know kind of the the john wayne archetype of mm-hmm. what it means to be a man and oh you're crying about something like 
pussy. So, uh, yeah, I think that is what lands most for me. And, and another thing that I think I'll just name right now is that there, there were certain, I mean, I'm tall, I am good looking, I'm good at sports. <laughs> so it was, it was a little confusing for me. It was like, mm. ah, I'm like, I'm, I'm right there. Like I, I could be, I, if I just like knew how to talk better, I would have it all, you know, that would be, that would be made. And so like, that is the so much unpacking around that because it wasn't like I was complete opposite. Mm-hmm. I always had a lot of friends and like always was well liked by people. And it felt like I was knocking on the door of the like American ideal. And it was so fucking confusing for me. Yeah. I, I totally hear that. I hear that as kind of looking at it through the lens of like, this is the one deficit that's keeping me from yes. meeting the kind of great potential of the like great American boy or the great American man, you know? Yeah. It's so interesting too. I think, you know, knowing that you have, we're deeply involved with sports and and just thinking about like, what is the system of sports in, in this culture and what are the expectations? And it's funny, you know, I went to my high school, like many high schools in America was like the, like the football team was God basically. Right. And the captain of the football team was also our vice principal, which like in hindsight is like a major sort of, I would consider that to be like (laughs) kind of a conflict of interest in a lot of ways. Right. Because if you are coaching a team and one of them causes trouble or steps outside the boundaries, then you have to sort of make this decision of, am I going to discipline them and take them off the team? Or do I want to keep my team intact? And I'm going to sort of let this really bad behavior slide. Right. So again, I look back at that and I'm like, oh, so interesting. But it's that culture of kind of manhood, boyhood, like even for me as a woman, you know, when I reflect upon being in high school, I sort of reflect upon, oh, that was the dominant culture. And then girls in turn were expected to be like really fun and like really cute and like really permissive of that really (laughs) dominating shitty behavior. And I wasn't, you know, and so I think for me, it also, I struggled with feeling like, you know, and I think this relates a lot to like sort of thinking of masculine feminine outside the confines of gender, right. But as two different kind of energetic streams and like how confusing it is, particularly when we're younger. And I mean, all of this is like so up right now and is like so shifting and I'm like feeling so kind of, incredibly blown away and like so positive about what's happening in our country at large around like gender fluidity and, you know, many people coming out as non-binary or transitioning and just really saying like, Hey, like there's different ways I relate to my body and there's different ways I relate to sort of the streams of energy that, that dominate for me. And I think for me as a girl in high school, I often felt like, like I too struggle with sort of masculine aggression in its kind of most hyperbolic form and what that means for me to embody that as a woman. And there's just a lot, I mean, we could like do a whole (laughs) sociocultural exploration of that, but yeah. Mm. Yeah. Were you raised culturally Jewish? I I see your last name is Solomon. Yeah, no, I was not. I was raised like, I was raised with like a void of like religious Uh practice. So it's interesting, you know, my great grandfather was a rabbi. 
my grandparents were practicing Jews, except, you know, they would eat shellfish on the Sabbath. And, you know, there were ways they started to sort of slip out of the more kind of like orthodox practice. And then my dad just like no real Jewish education, God bless them. You know, we lit the menorah on Hanukkah, but that was pretty much the extent of it. And so that's actually been a really big sort of journey for me to say, like, if I want to inhabit inhabit that sort of part of my lineage or understand it, like I need to seek out that connection on my own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And one, one of the reasons that I asked and one of the reasons it was a curiosity for me is that it's, it just brings into awareness the, oh, there's so many different systems, right? So there's like, we've already named, there's societal, the familial, there's the, whatever school you attend there or your workplace. If you're, if you're working, there's religion. There's so, there's so many things intersecting all at the same time. And it's a lot for us as one individual to process. But one of the, one of the things that feels alive for me, given what we've spoken about so far is this where none of us are really binary. I mean, I, I would just, mm-hmm. if I had to pick myself in one form or another, with regards to introversion or extroversion, I am introverted. But in certain times, I mean, I could definitely be extroverted. And I'd be curious to hear you speak about polarities and, and how you think that pertains to effective leadership. Mm. Yeah, I think about polarities all the time, because when I think about sort of where, again, back to this kind of existential, like when I zoom out to the highest level, and I think about what we as a species, what some of the kind of core primary sort of lessons, learnings, developmental edges that we're grappling with. This piece around polarity is like absolutely in my mind, like top, top, top. And I think, you know, it's why we're seeing so much division, political division. It's why we're struggling with so much righteousness. You know, I do think it's really interesting. We sort of think of things of being on a spectrum from like A to Z And um, politically, especially, I found it really interesting that I'm really starting to see things as more circular by nature, right? So I think it's interesting that you can sort of swing so far, quote, on left or liberal or whatever we want to call it, that you sort of come right back around to to what we might describe as a right-wing ideology, right? And it's just a fascinating, (laughs) it's fascinating when we really start to dissect things to realize that we're not really operating in a in linear ways, uh, but we love to think we are because it creates a sense of certainty and start to finish, beginning to end, right? There's something sort of takes the ambiguity and anxiety uh, out for a lot of people. I think in general, when I think about leadership, I think, you know, we have mostly existed in very kind of masculine dominated organizations. We've prioritized a sort of masculine version of leadership. And so I really do see part of my work with leaders as helping sort of people integrate the many ways that they arrive at insight or make decisions, right? One being these more linear things around like spreadsheets, pragmatics, right? Like strategy, research, data, bottom line, all of these things that are a little bit more pragmatic or pin downable. 
And then helping them also access their own somatic awareness. What are the kind of other questions that they're asking themselves beneath the surface, right? Even when it might seem like a good idea as a leader to make a decision because all of the numbers line up, right? I think sometimes a leader can have that inner sense of like, something's not quite feeling right about this. And that's where it becomes more about moving into the expansive space of inquiry. What doesn't feel right about it? Where's that coming from, right? Does it not feel right because something's being triggered within us that we need to look at? That's our own stuff. Or does it not feel right because there's actually a deeper intuitive sense that this isn't the move or the decision that should be made for reasons that haven't totally shown themselves yet. And so I do see a lot of the work of sort of integrating the seen and the unseen, the mystical and the strategic, the left brain, right brain, masculine, feminine, however we want to talk about all that stuff. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I'm I'm wondering how you help. It it could be yourself. It could be clients, people in your life, uh, cultivate that intuition, especially um, I think a lot of, I make up the story and I think it, it probably the story checks out. A lot of leaders are excellent at what they do because mm-hmm. they have like spreadsheeted their way through all this stuff. Like they have really weighed down like all the data is uh, is like my ducks are in a row. I I can look at I could very point I could point to this very concrete thing here. And uh, especially mm-hmm. early on in your career, like that is going to get you places in mm-hmm. a lot of the roles that that call for uh, leadership coaching at some point. So I, I'd be curious to hear, yeah, some ways that you cultivate intuition in your life or that you help your your clients cultivate their inner knowing. Yeah. So again, I always want to make clear and in the spirit of not being polarized myself, right? That like everything needs to exist and everything needs to exist in in good balance, right? So spreadsheets, pragmatics, ROI, you know, I think there's this sense when we're like, oh, we live in this capitalist society, money sucks. It's like, I don't know, does money suck? Money is just money. Our relationship to money is actually what deserves some inquiry, right? So yeah, I would say... So I'll talk about it a little bit in the in the through the framework of emotional intelligence and tell me if this is getting at your question, right? One of the things that we often say when we're talking about EI or sort of the need to develop EI is that people get promoted based on skills into levels of leadership and then they are dealing with other people, right? So they there's like two aspects to making change in an organization. One is like projecting out like Will this change serve the organization? Will it keep this organization, you know, sustainable, viable, et cetera? Like, what are the steps we need to take? Like all of that kind of pragmatic planning, right? And then there's the other element of like, who are the people we need to influence, empathize with, work with, collaborate with in order to sort of make this change possible or drive towards this goal, right? And that's when we start to get into the relational space. And so I think like there are plenty of ways that organizations can continue to excel by making decisions that all are very good on paper. And I think what happens in some of these organizations is that there's a lot of turnover, a lot of people get lost along the way, right? And so even as they might be excelling financially in this one way, there's all of this sort of lost energy, lost resources when there is a lack of being able to actually move into the more kind of relational space. 
and to be asking two questions at the same time of like, does this make sense in a numbers sense? Does this make sense in a strategic way? And also, what does this mean for, for the people around me? What does this mean for my team? What does this mean for me as a leader? How do I need to like shift and change and grow internally to meet this change? How do I need to talk to people about this? What's the input I should be getting? And it's a both. And I think like in terms of developing that sort of moving more into that relational space, developing emotional intelligence, developing intuition, there's lots of layers of that. And like one, I think the most fundamental is coming back into right relationship with the body, right? Remembering that we are in a body and that the body has amount of information and that we can feel and sense a lot of things through our body. But also there's, you know, there's so many layers to this practice of self-awareness, I think, which is at the foundation of emotional intelligence. There's like the very kind of first layer of like recognizing what we feel and like understanding why we feel it and like what triggers us and how to sort of moderate or work with those triggers of understanding how to sort of reshape or re- like the internal narratives that are driving us and how to reshape or reform those, our narratives about others and how to create new narratives about people and meet them with more empathy. There's all of that. And I think what's interesting is I've been thinking about this a lot lately because I'm like, oh man, I've been on a long, long personal development journey through my life, you know? And when I really think, and this harkens back to some of what we were talking about before we even hit record, there are so many tools, modalities, and practices out there to kind of understand the forces by which we are conditioned, right? Whether that's childhood, whether that's ancestral, systemic, political, all the biases, the traumas, et cetera, to understand those and to heal them quite honestly. And I think part of coming in touch with our intuition is a process of healing. I think the things that cloud our intuition um, are ways that our nervous system is very stuck in fight, flight, or freeze. It's really hard to be in a state of listening when that's true, right? And we all have places where we're stuck in that from from traumas that we both know and, and don't know. I just lost my train of thought, but I wanted to just breathe for a second. And- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a lot in here. I know. I could really, I know. I know. I could really, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I think this piece about intuition is such an interesting word and I grapple with using it sometimes Mm. because I think people are like immediately sort of, particularly people who work in a sort of corporate, more linear environment, right? They're like, oh, that is some, that is some witchery (laughs) and that is reserved for people with very special powers. Now, I do believe that some people come into this lifetime with incredible amounts of intuition that shows up like clairvoyance or talking to spirits, you know, however that looks. But every single one of us is an intuitive being. I I just like want to say that because I think there's no like, we all have a kind of deep inner knowing. And when we can kind of, it's almost like dusting off a diamond, right? When we can kind of dust off the things that get in the way of really hearing that and understanding that. And when we can begin to do the inquiry of like, okay, when I hear an inner voice, 
what part of that is my intuition, like a real deep inner knowing that's guided by some like larger soul spirit essence that I'm not even sure I could name or put words to. And what if that is my shadow talking and is like actually quite a lot of psychological projection based on some like wounding that I haven't totally looked at, right? And I don't think it's as easy as we get messages or we don't. I think it's that we we sort of have awareness or we have understanding and then we need to look at that and go even deeper with it and say, where is this informed by? And I know for me, when I am truly operating from a place of, a like deep inner soul knowing I can feel it in my body feels different in my body. And there's just like an entire kind of emotional state that overcomes me that I'm like, oh, and, and often it's like a state of feeling really kind of expanded or a state of, of, of love, quite honestly. And a deep state of, I feel, I feel it is like a deep state of alignment versus other moments where I'm like, this is true. And I'm like, oh, tricky little ego. I see you trying to, I see you can feel my little ego in there, right? Trying to like assert truth around something from a place that's actually much more defended. Mm. So I hope that answers some of your question, but. God, there's, there's so many things that we could, we could probably have entire podcasts about like eight of the things that you named there individually, but Two things are coming to mind for me in, in this moment. One is just something that I think I want to name as a practice that I use with my clients sometimes. I certainly use it with myself. And I think I certainly have the tendency to think really big on things. Like when I hear a new idea, I'm like, what's the next huge choice I can make in my life that I can, I'm going to tap right into my intuition. And it's like, all right, like I, I use my inner knowing there. And what I have found really helpful as a practice for me is like, what are some everyday, if I check in with like my, what, what's happening in my body when I make an everyday decision. So for some reason, I don't even have a dog, but I, I grew up with a dog. I can imagine like if I move towards my dog, there, there's something that there's a lightness that is moving through my body. There's something naturally comforting mm. about that. <sighs> or like, I don't know, uh, deciding whether or not to call my, my dad because I haven't spoken to him in a little bit. Or there's just, there's so many choices that if we slowed down, we would realize it's not only because it makes sense because of the data or like the ROI would be great. Like those, like you said, those are really great things, powerful tool, all for it. But there are so many times in our life that we are doing something because the, it just inside it it makes us feel some type of way yeah so yeah i want to just name a practice that i often use that comes from this body of work the systemic constellations so uh, just briefly constellations work is something that i've been studying pretty intensively for the past couple of years and i'm using more and more with my clients and it's a way if, you know you mentioned internal family systems right or we've been talking about systems it's a way of setting up representations so sometimes that looks like taking objects on a table sometimes that looks like putting pieces of paper on the ground sometimes that looks like working with a group and having people step in for different elements of a system right so in a family system 
if you're struggling with an issue and or if you want to understand sort of the dynamics between members of the family, you would have a representation for dad, for I shouldn't even say for dad or for mom. That's a very heteronormative <laughs> way of even describing that. But for for parent or caregiver one, for parent or caregiver two, right? The grandparents, whoever you want to put in. And based on how those objects arrange in space, you start to understand what is the relationship between them? What's the distance? What do I feel when I stand in this part of the system and look at all the other members of the system? So one of the things, and that's a very somatic awareness practice, like you're saying, often when we're representing in a constellation, what we're doing is we're stepping into an element of a system and we're reporting entirely from what we feel, not what we think, not the stories that might be coming to us, but what do I feel when I stand in this part of the system? One of the things I've been doing in the context of decision-making, right? When I'm struggling with making a decision and say it's like a client decision of like, do I want to take on this contract full-time, part-time or not at all? I will write down those three options very clearly on three separate pieces of paper. I will fold them up so I can't, I don't know what they are. I will shuffle them. And then one by one, I will place them to where I think they belong on the floor. And I will go stand on each of those options and just take note of what my body feels. Mm. And for me, one of the sensations that often occurs when I'm standing in something that is, does not actually feel like it's totally aligned with what I need or want is like nausea, tightening of the throat, like those bodily sense with that intention to stand in that thing, those bodily sensations come instantly. And sometimes I wait on that nausea because I'm like, okay, it's just a little bit of fear. What's behind this? Is there anything else that wants to come? What's underneath this? And I just start to say, what do I notice in the room? Like, what's the quality of my vision standing in this part of the system? What am I smelling, sensing, feeling? Do I have access to all of me? Do I feel anxious? Um, and this has been like a powerful tool for gaining insight into kind of what the operational forces are, particularly when I'm in a place where I can't shut off my analytical mind, you know? Yeah. It's such a beautiful practice. I, I really love that. It's so specific and, and tangible and we can all relate to that, whether it's coaching clients or whatever choice that we're making that only has a you know small menu of options i'm going to try that i really want to like fold up a couple of different options put them on the floor check in with myself i think going into this conversation i wouldn't have i wouldn't have anticipated that this would be the the structure or like the linearity of the conversation but i think we're actually kind of backing into one of the ways that we are not in tune with our intuition is because we don't even know what we're feeling at any mm -hmm. given point because we're living neck up. Mm -hmm. So I would love to hear you now just talk about however you see fit, but it, you do a lot of work with Daniel Goleman and emotional mm -hmm. intelligence. Mm -hmm. I would love to hear just like high level. If you're, if you're working with someone who's living mostly neck up, who's thinking and analyzing their way through life, like where, how do you help someone cultivate the, awareness, even the literacy around what are the emotions I'm experiencing? Yeah. Yeah. First of all, when I found, uh, you know, I met Dan about six years ago, we started working together. He was developing a coaching program at the time that was taking his entire body of work and emotional intelligence and putting it into a curriculum. I wrote portions of that curriculum 
it was an incredible opportunity to actually sit down and go through pretty much his entire body of work and sort of think about what are the fundamental things people need to know if they're learning about emotional intelligence. And then went through that coaching program and co-host Dan's podcast and have been very involved with him and his model over the years. When I discovered his model, my and this is similar to coming across constellations, these bodies of work we find when we're like, oh my God, this is the thing that's taken all the things I've been thinking about. And it's like, helps it make sense in this way, right? Or it's all sort of coming together under this thing. So the foundation of emotional intelligence is self-awareness, right? And it is naming or understanding what we're feeling, right? And I think people come in at very different sort of, I don't even want to say levels of self-awareness. It sounds a little bit hierarchical, but with very different tools for building self-awareness naturally on their own. And there's a lot of ways to do that. I think helping people understand their emotions is often a matter of slowing down and asking them when that thing happens, what do you feel in your body? And again, going to that sort of like pre getting them below the neck quite as like it's similar to what you said. I think with time, as people practice naming their emotions more and more, then there becomes a deeper practice of understanding, you know, there's the primary emotions, right? Sadness, anger, I don't even think despair is in there. You know, there's like, I think five or six, seven, like forget at this point. But with time, I think people gain a lot more understanding of the nuance of emotions, right? And to be able to say, oh, it's sadness, but it's like this particular quality of sadness. Oh, it's grief. And then, oh, it's fear. Underneath the grief is fear. And then it's fear of this specific thing, right? And I think there's so many layers to our, our emotional experience. Um, one of the things that we talk about in constellations often is this concept of secondary emotion and primary emotion. And so when working with a client, the way that secondary emotion might express itself is almost like a hamster wheel, right? Like, I'm mad, I'm mad because of this, I'm mad because I'm mad, I'm mad, I'm mad, I'm mad. And it's like helping people slow down enough to be like, what's underneath the madness? Like what's causing the rage? I find that for myself, usually when I'm feeling a lot of rage, and sometimes this takes a matter of minutes, and sometimes this takes a matter of days. If I can keep asking that question of like, what am I really feeling underneath the rage? Often for me, it's grief. When I can experience that grief comes tears. And when I can experience those tears comes relief, even though grief, you know, we might think of it as like a hard or painful emotion to sit with. I think we recognize the honesty of our own emotions that when we name them, there is a palpable sense of relief in our bodies. And so part of working with clients is helping them find that, right? Like where how do you name your emotion? And then what, when you name it that, what do you actually feel? Even if it feels sad, does it feel like a giant exhale in some way? Because the thing that you didn't, that you were trying to push away, you're finally welcoming in mm -hmm. and that there's actually so much peace with just being and accepting what is actually in our experience instead of spending all that energy trying to reject or dissociate. Mm -hmm. So I hope that answers your question, but that is the 
that is the foundation of emotional intelligence, self-awareness. And then the other aspect of self-awareness is really understanding our blind spots, right? And the best way to do that is to inquire into our surroundings. And I think one of the kind of pitfalls of some forms of personal development or spiritual practice is that self-awareness becomes this very I practice, right? Where we're like me and I'm gaining insight into myself and I understand me. And all of a sudden we're operating in this like one person system and other people are around us are like, actually, like we have some things to reflect back to you too, you know? (laughs) And so I think to really build true self-awareness, and this is why for emotional intelligence, the assessment that Dan developed is a 360 assessment, right? You ask people around you in your environment, you know, how do I show up in these type of situations? Like, how do you experience me in this way? Mm-hmm. And then you get to really look at the gap between your understanding of yourself, how you perceive yourself and how others perceive you. And from there, that creates really powerful insight and some really from an EI perspective, specific areas or EI competencies to coach a client around developing. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Susan David's work, and she does a she does a lot of work around emotional agility, and mm-hmm. she asks. I, I I sometimes have an aversion to people using you know like catchy phrases, but she says she asks the question, "What what's the funk?" Meaning. What's the function yeah. for for each emotion? And yeah. I said, okay, whatever. I, <laughs> but uh, my aversion aside, like I think that's catchy, and people will understand that emotions all are here for a reason, and that mm. we don't get to silo. Like I only want to feel joy, and I only want to feel happiness, and I'm just going to put anger and fear and despair and grief in a box over mm-hmm. there. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to the ways and like, what are the functions of these different emotions and what, what's the cost of us not allowing ourselves to feel them? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'd say first and foremost, the function of emotion also relates back to intuition and perception around what's happening in the environment and what is being communicated to us. Our emotions allow us to sort of understand the things around us in a different way. I think, you know, what you're talking about, I, you know, call it like toxic positivity. I often call it kind of, it's like the bypassing mechanism of some positive psychology or some forms of spirituality. Right. And I think this is like, so, you know, you look at, you look at forms of manifestation, right. Or manifestation principles that are like only focus on the positive and you will only draw the positive into your life. Right. And it actually becomes this like hyper militaristic, rigid practice, right. That actually talk about polarity. It's like swinging the pendulum so far in one direction. I tend to believe that what we resist persists, right? So when we operate in that fashion, all of those things we don't want to feel manifest in a billion other ways. And whether that's like a bipolar break, mental health breakdown, broken relationships, like however however our our environment or our inner psyche is trying to show us the kind of subjugation of those things. I do think emotions from like lately, I'll just share personally, one of the practices that I've really been in is noticing where I get really triggered by people mm-hmm. and starting to do some inquiry of both, what is this telling me about what I value? So if I'm angry at so-and-so for doing X, Y, Z, what is in that behavior that might be rubbing up against a value that I have? What it, and then I get to identify that value. 
I also think emotions show us uh, an opportunity for shadow work. And by shadow work, I mean like the repressed sides of ourselves, the sides of ourselves that we are like, I cannot see that. I refuse to see that. That is not a part of who I am. Now, going back to sort of the opposite of this or that or black or white, right? Like if we think of like every single emotion is, is able to be felt. We can feel every single emotion, right? (laughs) We are, we are so many different moving parts. There are so many aspects to ourselves, our psyches, our personalities, you know, I mean, in one situation, we might look like this and another, we might look like this. If we try and play the thought game of what would it be like if I was born in X, Y, Z circumstances, we don't know who we would have become. Right. So everything is possible within us. And yet I think for many reasons, some of them cultural, like we were talking about, right. Some of them of like, I am trying to fit a version of masculinity. Therefore I cannot be the, the tender self. Therefore I'm going to say that the tender self doesn't exist. And that self sort of gets put into the shadows of my consciousness and entirely rejected. I'm not including that in my experience of who I am. I find that often the way that manifests is we are shown tenderness in our environment somehow, and we are triggered by it. We're like, you dare not be tender, we say to someone else, because really what we're saying to ourselves is, I dare not be tender. Mm -hmm. And I think some of the most powerful work that I've been able to do personally right now is to notice how those triggers are showing up (laughs) and then be like, okay, Liz. So, you know, and I'll use an example of out of control. I've often had this thing when things feel out of control, when people feel out of control, right? Where I'm like, it's out of control. And I get really controlled. I'm like, I am going to get rigid and organized. Mm. And lately I've been just like looking at myself and being like, you're out of control. What does it actually, what does it actually feel like to look at myself in the mirror and say, that's a possibility for me to be out of control. I know that's possible for myself. That's a part of me too. And again, back to this sense of like how I experience healing or release in my body. There's often like a nervous system settling when I can like really acknowledge that I am that thing too. I'm like, oh, that's relieving. And then it all becomes this kind of like funny cosmic joke. You're like, that's so funny and tricky that I get presented things in my experience. (laughs) I'm like, I'm like, no, 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 no. And then the minute I'm like, yeah, actually. Then I'm like, ah, okay. Very, very tricky mirroring process that we have going on here. Mm. Yeah. I'm going to make this about me again for a second. Please do. Please do. do. I just, I just know that this, it it really pertains a lot to what you were saying. And there is a a way in which I'll just get into the explanation. There was a time, it was probably in the last two months that my wife told me that someone that we knew bought a roughly like $1.7 million apartment. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, my response to her was, oh, that's great. And she could tell beneath that there was some sort of harsh judgment. And what was really happening in me was I was really fucking angry. Like, Mm -hmm. why? That is ridiculous. Like, given what's happening in this world, but you're buying a $1.7 million apartment, who the hell do you think you are? And I brought that to my coach probably a few days later. And it's just like, I, I was really angry. And 
I tried to mentally override my way out of it. Like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, it's a, it's a night. It's his money. Do whatever he wants. Like, good for him. Blah blah blah. And this this question around like, what do you value? Well, it was very alive for me there because underneath the anger, when I allowed myself to just hear the anger, there was a little bit of sadness and grief. Mm-hmm. And what it was really pointing me to was my value of I want fairness and equality in the world. Yeah. I want everyone to be able to have the life that they want to have. Yeah. And if I didn't take the time to slow down and tune into that, then I would just be walking around angry and, and reactive and triggered a, a lot more, if yeah. if not all the time. And it's it's constant work, right? I mean, it's I, I don't just invite in my emotional experience all the time. But there, I've been unpacking years and years and years and potentially generations and generations and generations of that's not appropriate mm-hmm. given the context of the situation. So let's move on and ignore the feeling. And it's a really wonderful practice to to sit in the inquiry mm. of like, hmm, what is this really about? What is What value is it pointing to? And because I think there's just on a selfish level, there was this that sigh of relief that you were talking about. Yeah. It was also, you know, Mike, like how how can you show up to support more fairness and equality in the world, right? Totally. So it's like the acknowledgement of I've got lots of work to do there too. Yeah. It's so interesting. I'll, I'll expand upon that and thinking about this example of crazy. And when I say cra- crazy, such probably not the right word to use, but I think in the presence of people who I experienced to be like incredibly all over the place and fiery and righteous. And like, there's just this, like a lot of fire, right? That's when I get really like, whoo, all better buckle our seatbelts and hold on. Right. And underneath that, and actually this actually interestingly just came through on a assessment I did with another coach. It's like, what is the thing? And I'm like, oh, it's about safety for me. Mm-hmm. I value safety. Now, everyone values safety in some way. It's kind of a like ridiculous example to use because we all like need to feel safe in the world. But I value it in the extent that like I value creating safety for my coaches. I value creating safety, emotional safety, psychological safety as a facilitator. I value what is possible for me and for others when we feel like truly, truly safe. And so for me to be confronted by that kind of all over the place, you don't know which way it's going to turn, very fiery, kind of rageful energy, it's like immediately, again, just makes me feel like, oh, I'm, I'm not safe. No one's safe. I need to like struggle to create safety in this moment. Yeah. So I agree. It's a both and, right? It's a both and. I have the possibility to be crazy in me and I really value safety. Okay. <laughs> yes. And then wow, it's like, oh, look, yeah. look what opened up there. Like, yeah. I'm a lot right. more and, available. And in the context of leadership, right? It's like if you can help uh, you know, identifying those values as a leader, then asks allows you to ask other questions of like, where am I creating safety for others as a leader? Like how again am I creating an environment where that value is is lived and breathed or at least contributing to the cultural or the general tone of the organization. Yeah. There's there's countless other examples that I could bring into the conversation now, but I, I think what I'm more drawn to is this really reminds me of nonviolent communication. Mm. Mm-hmm. And nonviolent communication 
if you get nothing else out of reading the book or looking it up, there's a there's a couple of pages that just have a list of the different feelings you have mm-hmm. and a list of the different needs that you have uh, that you could have. It's yep. they're pretty they're not exhaustive, but they they're pretty inclusive. And I think what underlies a lot of my feelings is this need to either see or be seen and to hear or be heard. Mm-hmm. And so I, I guess another way that this might show up for me is if there's someone who is dominant in a conversation, I am highly reactive to someone who is, you know, it, I would make up the story that they are talking too much. And mm-hmm. Am I, I talking too much? I feel like I've been dominating this amount. Just <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. I had been, I had been low key sitting here though. Like, Ooh, I'm talking a lot right now. Yeah. Yes, I love doing this in, in an interview setting. I am like, I, I soak this all in, right. Yeah. I, yeah. I get to interview people and, and soak in the wisdom of, of all these different things I care about. But if it's like at a, dinner party or something and there's one person who's like you'll never believe what story i you know what stuff happened and and i'm not asked anything about how i'm doing or what's going on in my life that is something that i can get very reactive and and triggered Mm. to and it does it just relates to that that need to be seen and to be heard yeah yeah i and i hear that too as you're talking the word that sort of that is value around reciprocity Right. And this is actually one of the kind of foundational core tenets of systemic constellations is looking at like systems in order to flow smoothly. There needs to be clear and balanced give and take. There needs to be a flow, actually. Right. So just thinking a little bit about like both that need to be seen and to be heard that you're identifying. And also that sense of like what happens when one person is doing all the giving and the other is doing all the taking in that instance of like time, energy, and attention. And how does that actually create a sort of systemic imbalance that is creating disrupt both in our individual system and in the group that is kind of a part of that experience, right? And I mean, this happens all the time. I'm just thinking about in organizations, right? One of the reasons we're talking about psychological safety in organizations is because we're like, oh, some people are talking an awful lot and others aren't talking at all. And that's actually like a block to the system flowing as smoothly as it could be or progressing in the way mm-hmm. that it needs to be. Yeah. I appreciate that you brought in nonviolent communication. It's interesting. It's a body of work that I like have obviously ingested over the years and, and looked at, and I think it's really valuable. And I also know that it's not something I have deep expertise in like as a, as a sort of format or a modality, but I know that people have gotten an incredible, I know a lot of people that have benefited so much from NBC. As a, as a client, a lot of my coaching has been around understanding what, what am I feeling and what are the needs? And it's, yeah. it's directly attributed to nonviolent communication. I mean, that, yeah. is, that is what a lot of my work has been. And I mean, I'll, I'll share another example. And then I would love to steer the conversation in like a slightly, there's a, there's some dots that I'm, I'm wanting to connect in my head here, but yeah. When I first started working with, and you know my coach, Yo, Yo Tom Schachter, yeah, there was a, my goal was very one track minded around. I work in accounting right now. I know that I want to be coaching and working in people development of some in some way. Let's let's get me there, right? Like that's that's the goal, and I will be much more fulfilled and satisfied when I am coaching 
full time. Mm-hmm. And he has really, really, really massaged into me like, what it what need is that meeting in your life? Yeah. What like if you were coaching full time, what would be the best part about that? And it's it's such a simple question, but it's like, oh, you know, like I would have intimacy and deep connection and a sense of impact and belonging and all these wonderful things. And it's okay, great. Like, how are those available in your life right now? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, or what are the other places that you can actually yes. cultivate that, that might take some of the pressure off looking at coaching as kind of the be all end all of your emotional and spiritual satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And there was a way in which my, my ego did not want to let go of like, no, being an accountant is a not, is not a meaningful job. It's not an expression of you know, I, I even like dress it with fancy personal development. I'm not in my zone of genius. I feel like I'm rotting away a little bit slowly, but I feel like the the best part of the work that I've done with him is that I am at all times, I'm scanning for what, you know, what are the things that I most value and how can I infuse them into my life as it currently is mm. without it being like, you know, three years from now, I, I will be there and there's a way in which like long-term thinking that you and I have drived a little bit on long-term thinking, mm-hmm. how that's a really beautiful thing mm-hmm. that I know that, you know, at some point in my career, I'll, I'll probably be there, but it also, it, it does start from a place of, well, like, let's start living that right now. So, yeah, there's so much in there too, of like dropping from like the specificity of a thing to the essence of a thing, which I think is so important. And again, moving from kind of the the head, right, which is like yes. operates in this like intellectual psychoanalytical mode where it's like X is Y or Y is Z and is A causing B. We get so jumbled up in there, right, to below to like, what is the essence of a thing? And I, I think that question is so valuable. It reminds me a little bit of a conversation that some colleagues and I were having last night as part of this group I'm a part of called the Teal Team which looks at Teal as like sort of way of thinking about restructuring organizations around like Patagonia. Like, a, actually, I don't know if Patagonia is Teal. I, they have a lot of Teal principles though. So the Teal principles are evolutionary purpose, that the purpose of the organization and our individual purposes are always evolving and and sort of attuning to that and, and making sure that's aligned. Holism, creating work environments where our, our sort of whole self is welcomed in, right? And we're making space for the whole selves of others and self-management. So distributing leadership and power. And we had this conversation last night. I think there were probably about eight of us on the call. Some people work in organizations. Some people are coaches and consultants outside of larger organizations. And the question that we posed at the end is, what is what do we see as the future of Teal, of organizations moving towards this paradigm, right? Knowing that even the organizations that want to move towards this paradigm are, are having some, some, some blocks and, and troubles along the way. And someone mentioned, you know, power. And it's interesting. I think about power all the time, right? I mean, how can we not? We're like <laughs> living in a time of being like power and leadership and corrupt power and too much power and who has power and what is the power through data and social media that's being held over us that we don't even know about and vaccinations and who has the right to say an abortion, right? It's like we're in the great reckoning with power. But one of the questions that I was posed last night and have been thinking about a lot is, you know, I think that the question that the team posed was, well, will organizations 
will leaders and mass ever be able to sort of give up that deep desire for power that encourages things like very traditional hierarchies, a very kind of power over mentality, micromanaging, right? All the things that, that sort of contradict these greater cultural movements towards creating workplaces based on like more autonomy and empowerment and et cetera. And I was wondering, I was like, I do, again, like the need that is met, like what need is met through power? And it feels like part of it is a need for clarity, a sense of groundedness, you know, like we could say control, but it's like what's underneath control, right? What do we really feel when we we have control, we, we feel kind of like aligned in some way, right? And the question I was posing is like, what would organizations look like if we felt more powerful in other aspects of our lives? Where are we over asserting the use of power in organizations or have sort of these dysfunctional relationships to power at the level of leadership as a mask for all the other ways we feel powerless? And I think that some of the reason, and this is just me working this thought out, that we feel powerless is like a great disconnection with some of the things that we're talking about here, like the deeper aspects of like the soul, of nature, of our place within a greater system or cosmos, of time as being like deeper and more elongated, of you know the power that comes with seeing ourselves as kind of a piece of a much larger trajectory or network of relationships. And so it's reminding me a little bit of this sense of like, what is the essence of the thing that we're like, what is the essence that we're actually trying to achieve? And what are the other places and spaces that we could achieve that? Or whether other other ways we could achieve that in this moment that, that wouldn't have us seeking to exert it over there or have it over there or be a coach because then our life is going to be fulfilled, right? Yeah, so that was a bit of a tangent, but some of what I've been thinking about. <laughs> I kind of, for some reason, I'm having the uh, the temptation to kind of just word vomit a, a couple of different questions at you. And yeah. I would love for almost in the way that you did with your intuition, where you, you put the three answers on the floor and you feel into it. I would love for you to just, you feel into which feels most alive for you and we can go in that direction. Mm. One thing that we've named a little bit, but haven't really done a deep dive around is is healing work. Mm-hmm. And I would love to know some of the healing that you have done mm-hmm. or that you would invite folks into. So that's mm-hmm. that's one, the first option on the menu. The second, we have spoken a lot about how we've spoken about emotional intelligence and a lot about how the system influences the individual Mm -hmm. and i would love to flip it around how can a leader influence the the system and then Mm. the the third thing that i am sitting with right now is i think before we hit record and in my research of you you talked about the the world that you are envisioning that you're excited to create and that while it, while it might not happen in mm-hmm. our lifetime, you're optimistic that it will get there at some point. And I would love to hear what is that world that you are excited to create? Mm. <laughs> I know those are mm. wildly different questions, but. Yeah. 
It's interesting. The healing one is something I've been thinking a lot about lately as I've been like reflecting on my own journey, but I'm going to start for a minute with the piece around individuals or leaders influencing systems. Mm. And I think we'll come back around. So, and this is where emotional intelligence becomes so wildly important. I think, you know, in order for a leader to influence a system, there's a lot of modalities to draw on. The first I think is like systemic constellations, understanding truly at the deepest level, what is what are the patterns within this system? What are the relational dynamics that have been repeated over time? I think sometimes, you know, if we are trying to push change in the face of something of a dynamic that we haven't fully named nor come to understand, then we keep getting our, our efforts keep getting hijacked in some way, right? And we sort of are like, I can't understand why it's the people. The people don't want to change. Like nobody likes change. Everybody's ever, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I think again, this is a constellations can really help us understand like what are the patterns that are happening in the system? How are people actually relating? What are the unspoken rules, values? What are the traumas, et cetera? And really expanding the timeline of our understanding around the system. Emotional intelligence again, becomes this sort of piece that helps us think about, you know, we talked a lot about self-awareness, what's like our inner experience, but the other competencies of emotional intelligence, you know, one, for example, is organizational awareness, having an awareness of what different roles and functions do different people play within the system? Who are the players? And this gets back to constellations too. What are people's relationships to one another? If we're really looking to institute change, who do we need to collaborate with, get on board, right? And then we're moving into the competence of emotional intelligence of influence itself. Mm-hmm. How do we influence someone? There's lots of ways to do that. You know, I think influence certainly like any of uh, like anything in the world has a shadow side, right? Of like the man- the manipulation, <laughs> right? We manipulate people into doing things. That's really not influence. Influence is much more rooted in empathy. How do I understand what you're feeling, how you think, what you want in the world? How do I engage you uh, as like a coach or a mentor? right? Another competence of emotional intelligence and conversations about what you find meaningful. And then how do I draw the dots between what you find meaningful in this change that I am trying to enact or propel so that you are intrinsically motivated to come with me? How do I do deep listenings as a leader? So I know as I'm trying to make a change, is my plan the best plan, right? Maybe not. I mean, some and the larger the organization you have, the more disconnected leaders are from the people on the ground to these who, who really know best around some of the kind of pragmatic operational pieces of what's going to work and what's not going to work. So without like running through the whole model of emotional intelligence, which again, I just find Dan's model to be so brilliant because it gives us these kind of concrete buckets to think about developing competences in. Emotional intelligence is an incredible tool at large for helping an individual create systems change through the network of relationships. Healing-wise, man, my my journey has tapped into so many different different things, and I to think sort of pragmatically about like what are the modalities. Actually, before I do that, I want to ask: Are there any questions about what I just said, or did that? resonate or land about the individual that resonated for sure i would love to move on to healing 
this is like such a fun interview because you're letting me talk about all the things I really love to talk about. And I appreciate the like depth of your, yeah, it's so good. So good. Healing wise, so many methods and modalities, right? Like from individual therapy to energy work, to mindfulness, to yoga, to food, to, I mean, there are just like so many ways to surface a greater understanding of like what inside of us needs time, energy, love, and attention, and then to create sort of transformation and change. I want a presence though. Again, I keep talking about constellations, but I really think it's a powerful modality and I don't think it, I really expect that in the coming years, systemic and family constellations will gain a lot more traction kind of like in the public discourse or in the public eye. I already think we're seeing this like incredible fascination with ancestry, right? I mean, ancestry.com, what is it called? 21 and me, 23 and me, you know, people are in general becoming more fascinated with this sense of like, where do I come from? (laughs) Who do I come from? And so I want to name family constellations specifically as being an incredible part of my healing. And actually for me, I'm 41 and there have been things that I have circled on for a long time that have felt painful right? And I've gone to therapy and I've done energy work and I've done my own inquiry and I've journaled and I've done all of these things, right? And like made sense of them and figured out what's the story and the new story and et cetera, et cetera. But there have been some things for me with family constellations where the healing has happened so quickly, so rapidly on things that have been stuck for so long, you know, particularly you know, my my dad and I have had a very complex, very loving, but very complex relationship over the years. And even with the tools of emotional intelligence and the tools of mindfulness and sitting down and trying to cultivate compassion for him and to sort of get out of my fixed narratives about what's happened between us and see him as a whole person, seeing him represented in a constellation by someone who does not know my dad and the things that they were reporting from that representation and the way the representation of my dad in that constellation moved in time and space helped me understand him in like the deepest level of like my body. And it was like one constellation where I like felt almost like decades of stuff slough off me because I was able to see how certain dynamics between my father and I related to larger dynamics within our family system, related to traumas of his own, related to ancestral traumas. And the well of compassion that arose within me was so strong that it just like, and there have been other things in family constellations. So for example, in my mother's side of the family, there's like three or four generations of, and it actually uh, oddly exists in my dad's side too, which I think people will find this a lot that, you know, we sort of like attracts like in some ways. So we often have parents who share different sort of similar traumas in their family, a trauma that exists on both sides of my lineage, but more, more readily on my mother's is this dynamic of two sisters being, or or two women in the family who are like sisters being very, 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 very close, very close, very close. 
and then having some kind of disagreement or fallout and nobody talks to the other one again, right? There's like a complete disbandment. My cousin and I, who was like a sister to me growing up, we watched this happen in our family and we were like, this is not going to happen to us. We are absolutely not going to let this division happen to us. And now lo and behold, we haven't spoken in six years. So this created an opportunity for me to say what larger systemic forces are operating here, because obviously this is a pattern that's continuing to repeat itself, even with me and my cousin, who are both really committed to disrupting patterns and growing and, and you know, navigating conflict. One of the things that I learned in doing my ancestral history is that my great-grandmother who had one child, my grandmother, when my grandmother was, I think she must've been like 10, 11, 12 years old. My great grandmother must've had an affair. I would assume it's an affair, got pregnant and left my grandmother to go to Boston and have the baby without anyone in the family knowing she was pregnant, moved back up to Maine, which is where my family was and gave that baby up for adoption. No one in my family knew this. Okay. So, and I ended up going into ancestry.com and, and once this like came to my attention through the constellation that there was an ancestor who hadn't been included, I started doing a ton of research. I found all of the adoption records and the, my teacher, Leslie Nips, who facilitated my constellation, we went and did another constellation around it. And she pointed out to me, she was like, oh, there's this incredible trauma that was caused in that situation of one daughter gets the family and the other doesn't. And no matter how connected they are by DNA, they actually can't stay connected in the kind of lived reality because they didn't even know each other. So this was like a secret baby. This girl grew up down the street from my grandmother, meaning my grandmother had a sister who grew up down the street from her that she never knew. They never knew each other. And just that constellation and surfacing that awareness and, um, working with that ancestral dynamic, though my own cousin and I haven't actually come back together, relieved for me internally, all of those feelings of like rage against my cousin, who's right, who's wrong, who did what, whose fault is it? You're like this, but I'm like this. Maybe it's me, maybe it's you. It was like all of that just kind of dissipated because I was able to sort of understand something that was causing me pain and the context of um, a much larger dynamic within the family system. And that actually a lot of the pain that I was experiencing was on behalf of my ancestor for whom this sort of trauma of separation was very real. Mm. So I hope that was a clear example, but I, yeah. I want to name that as um, an incredibly powerful healing modality. And I just like want to encourage any listener out there who can who that's resonating with, who can feel that like, oh yeah, that thing I've been circling on, this pain point, this thing I haven't been able to actualize in my life and who can feel the presence of the block being much larger than what their kind of inner awareness or psychoanalytic mind can make sense of or resolve. Uh, I like encourage you to uh, look into family systems work because it's super powerful. Mm -hmm. It's really sparking uh, something in me, it's already been named a little bit in this conversation, but for me, I, I spoke a little bit about this need to be heard and how that's really 
that feels really alive for me a lot of the time. And my maternal grandfather, he passed away about two years ago. While he was never actually diagnosed, we believe that he had Asperger's and mm. there was there was a lot going on in his inner world that he was not able to articulate. And it was, it was very hard to get to know him. And I'm connecting the dots in a way of like, I don't, I, I must be carrying some of that. Mm. This, uh, this need to, there's like so much happening in here that I, I can't possibly put it all into words and uh that must be i must be carrying that from years and years and many generations and mm. i have never looked at healing through that lens before yeah and i invite you to to look at and again a constellation would probably reveal a lot about that dynamic and even yeah. if he even if it started with him right the next question would be how many lineages back does that go yeah. and what are all the circumstances of not being able to be heard but what's so sort of true and real and honest and raw is like, if that is something that you are experiencing on behalf, it's your grandfather, you said, right? Mm -hmm. It's like our way of showing love and loyalty to our ancestors in many ways mm -hmm. saying, okay, like there's a pain or something that has not been named or included in the system. So I am going to include it in myself in order to honor your experience in some way. And that's just one of the ways to look at it. And I'd be curious to know if, you know, how that lands. Mm -hmm in you as you sort of, especially as you continue to explore that. Yeah. Well, this has been an incredibly <laughs> rich, full of depth conversation. I, I have so enjoyed this. I don't even know if enjoy is really the right word, but I have felt the full spectrum of life mm -hmm. in, in this conversation. It's why I love doing this. And mm -hmm. I have just a, a couple of more questions for you. Mm-hmm. So I ask a, a couple of more, like they're rapid fire in nature, but they don't have to be short answers. I, I really okay. encourage you. I promise you, you're not talking too much. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> What's an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy? Wow. I'll just spit out the first thing that came to mind. My daughter has really, really curly hair. I have straight hair. And when she gets out of the shower, even though she's nine now and she can kind of technically do it herself, I'll often put this curl cream through her hair. And I actually just got the image of like rubbing my hands through her wet hair and just like there being something so maternal and loving and bonding and connected about that act. That's so sweet. Mm. Mm. What are maybe like one or two books, especially, I mean, systemic constellations come up a bunch of times like is there a book that you'd recommend mm -hmm. yeah uh there's a book that um is based off the work of bert hellinger who started uh the, this body of work systemic constellations are sort of for founding founding father although that term just sounds so laden with <laughs> yes. uh, but you get what i mean um and oh my god i'm hidden symmetry is the name of the book loves hidden symmetry a really beautiful book for anyone that wants to dive into learning about systemic and family constellations. Another book I'm reading, which I'll recommend right now that relates to some of the conversation we had around shadow work is a book by Debbie Ford called The Dark Side of the Light Chasers. 
and it's really good. It really like is clear about what this whole body of work called shadow work is and emotions, some of, you know, where our emotions are actually projections and how to do some of the integration of that shadow. So that's another really good book. And let me think, can I spit off three more? Can I like, can I go there? Okay. Oh yeah. I would also recommend one of the most influential books I ever read. Actually, oddly, one of the first books I ever read that felt influential was Old Man and the Sea, which is so funny in hindsight. I should probably go back and read that and see what in there was actually like totally pinging because I don't remember. But Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, which kind of taps into elements of this kind of existentialism or um, thinking about purpose and kind of where our drive for life comes from and matters of life and death. Emergent Strategy by Adrienne Marie Brown. She's just like, man, I am so excited to see her continuing to come up as a thought leader in our culture, particularly for those of us that are doing kind of systems change work. I just find her to be really authentically herself and really brilliant in how she thinks about systems and systems change. And I'll also name, because I talked about Teal and this kind of new form of organizational paradigm, Reinventing Organizations by Frederick Leloux is a really good book for anyone that wants to dive into that. And then I'm going to name one more call out. And this is, he wrote a book and he also writes these incredible posts on LinkedIn and He's a colleague of mine from my former days at the Great Place to Work Institute as a examining organizational culture and has now launched out on his own. His name's Ed uh, Fraunheim, and he writes a lot his, uh, on LinkedIn about what he's calling sleep epiphanies, which are these like dreams he's having that reveal yeah. to him aspects of where he has been kind of chained or suppressed by the sort of uh, masculinity on the level of systems and culture. So could you spell his last Ed Fraunheim? Fraunheim. Yeah. Oh my God. This is one of those last names where I'm like, it's like deeply, uh, (laughs) there's a lot lot of letters, but I can, I will send you a link to his LinkedIn and to his book afterwards. If you want to include it in the show notes, I will, I will include uh, all of the resources, all the books, all, all the things in the show notes. And yeah, before I ask my very final question, a couple of things you each episode, I invite my guests to present an organization or a charity that you'd like to raise awareness for. I'm going to botch the pronunciation, but is it, is it Palante Holyoke? Yeah, so that's one. And then I had actually, I'm not sure where they're at as an organization right now. So I'd given you another one last night. So La Palante wow. is an organization in Holyoke, Mass, right next door to me that is using sort of methods of gathering people together for constructive dialogue and drawing on practices and restorative justice to help high school kids talk through conflict intention. They're doing some really amazing work in Holyoke. The other organization that I wanted to cite also local and an organization that I've worked with is called Alianza DV. And they do work in domestic and intimate partner violence. And they just do some, man, they are like a small but mighty organization of 28 people who are doing some really powerful and incredible work. So I really encourage people if they have funds to give to drive them in that direction. I will do the same. Highly encourage anyone who's listening, if any any and all contributions, donations definitely make a difference. And where would you invite folks to connect with you? I know your, your website yeah. is New Realm Coaching. Uh, yep. Is there anywhere else that you invite folks to connect with you? 
Yeah, my website's newrealmcoaching.com. You can connect with me on LinkedIn, Elizabeth Solomon. I'm not super active on Instagram, though I have a, a presence there. And then the other thing I would suggest is to tune into our podcast with Dan and Hanuman Goldman, First Person Plural, Emotional Intelligence and Beyond. There's a lot of good listening there too. Beautiful. Well, the final question that I want to ask you, Elizabeth, the podcast is called Mike's Search for Meaning. You already alluded to Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Mm. I would love to hear in your words what it means to live a meaningful life. Oh, I'm going to take a pause and really think about how to summarize that in a short way. Take your time. I guess I'll say sort of on the topic of evolutionary purpose that in a kind of concrete sense, some of the things that have meaning to us or the, the ways it can actually look to live a meaningful life do and will change over time as we develop. Mm-hmm. But I do think that when I am feeling like I am living a meaningful life. I back to the body and feeling incredibly rooted and grounded. Like there's just like a stream of energy that is going down through my body into the ground. And I'm also feeling like my heart is incredibly wide open and incredibly expanded and that I am really serving myself and my relationships and kind of the greater community and the greater society in equal parts that nothing is being sacrificed or, or taking too much priority. That's really, there's a sort of sense of equanimity. Beautiful. Well, an epic interview it was. It mm. was such a pleasure to have you on Elizabeth. Mm. Uh, Thank you so much. One of, one of the podcasts that I listened to you on in, in research for today's conversation, the host or hostess rather said something to the effect of, I just, I felt like I had known Elizabeth my whole life and that that I was just sitting down with a really close friend and I can uh, plus one that it, it just felt as soon as we jumped on this call, Mm. there was, uh, there was some, there was a connection there. There was that energy that you can't possibly put onto a spreadsheet. Mm. Thank you. So thank you for being like available for that and for creating a space where you're really asking quite like asking people to really dive into um, what's meaningful for them and on sort of what their soul is, is calling out for. I just, I really like revel in it. I'm really, thank you. Yeah. Thank Mm. you for being a part of it. And Mm -hmm. uh, to all the listeners, whenever you're listening, hope you have a wonderful rest of your day or evening and Mm. take very, very good care. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.